This is We Met You When, a new podcast by journalism students at Toronto Metropolitan University. We go back in time, dig up news stories from 2012, and track down the people in those stories. Okay, cool. I'm going to start Yeah. Just refer to me as Burley, not article, I remember. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about that? It's okay. <laughs> I've acquired a lot of different tools over time, and... Yeah, it's always a work in progress, though, to say you're fixed. Uh, I wasn't fixed then, and I'm definitely not fixed now, right? We want to know what happened after their names were in the news. I almost feel like the depression started to set in when I realized this is, I can't keep this up. So at that point, I also think I was running out of steam. But then a lot of the external pressure, I think I let it get to me internally. I was like, oh, I'm in the newspaper now. Now they're going to like, know who I am. And like, if I lose, they're going to, I don't know, remember the newspaper article or something. Some were children when they were interviewed. Others were adults. No one was in a position of power. But many of them felt the power a news story can have. It's definitely something where even working with online databases and even working back with friends and peers and colleagues it's something always like, don't Google my full name, don't Google my last name. And sometimes some of the things that you said and the way they put it in, it doesn't sound like that's what you were saying. Do you know what I mean, right? And that's, to me, was scary, right? We're exploring the difference a decade makes and the difference we journalists can make going forward. By first, going back to 2012. I'm Maddie Mahoney. You're listening to We Met You When, Season 1. This is Don't Mess It Up. I'm very selective in terms of who I speak to. So I'm not really, I'll be honest with you, I'm not really for um, media. That's Michael Hines. For the past eight years, he's been extremely reluctant to speak with journalists. So nice to meet you. Oh, yeah, I was just recording right now, but is it okay? Yeah, thank you. Oh, you were recording right now? I mean, I'm just trying to get sound bites and stuff, so oh, okay. I can turn it off right now before I get that. Michael is a youth worker in Rexdale, the neighborhood where he grew up. It's in Northwest Toronto. He's worked in different programs over the years, many of them focused on providing mentorship to young people. He knows the difference it can make. It's something he wishes he'd had growing up. I grew up, you know, not having mentors, right? Um, And I think for me, um, as a spiritual person too, I think it's important for me to kind of support individuals that I see that need that guidance and support. One of the biggest things you can have as a young person is a bigger mentor or older brother that can support you through that times when you get stuck in life, right? You know what I mean? Or give you directions and giving you, shows you um, insights on different opportunities. And, And for me, it was just, you know, I got tired of, you know, you know, going to funerals. These days, he's with an organization called Think Twice. They work to reduce gun and gang violence through culturally sensitive programs. They do intervention and prevention using a trauma-informed approach. 
They also support folks who are integrating back into their communities after having been incarcerated. Another major service they provide is support to youth dealing with loss and grief. Michael used to do interviews about his work often. We actually found him through an article in the Toronto Star from 2012. It was about a program Michael was working for at the time called Breaking the Cycle, a gang exit program focused on intervention strategies to help youth break away from gangs. It served youth across the greater Toronto area. Something in that article really surprised us. It refers to the program as a hug-a-thug program. We found the use of that term pretty shocking. Michael remembered the term and where it had come from. Toronto's mayor at the time, Rob Ford, had started using it to criticize programs that he thought were too compassionate. Yeah, the Hug-a-Thug, Hug-a-Thug program. Yeah, that was funny when I heard um, Ford um, speak on that and he say that because if Ford really underst understood how and who the individuals are within these programs, these hug a thug programs that he calls. Understand who the, who the community that, you know, these marginalized communities, you understand that that word love is so powerful. Around that time, a lot of news coverage focused on gun violence in the city. City councillors wanted to provide $13 million in funding to community groups, including some that supported youth in the communities most impacted by violence, like breaking the cycle. But Rob Ford didn't like the idea. He said, quote, I don't believe in these programs. I call them hug-a-thug programs, and they haven't been very productive in the past, and I don't know why we're continuing with them. After that comment, the term hug-a-thug made its way into several other articles by various media outlets. News stories and opinion pieces used it, sometimes without any reference to Rob Ford, without any quotation marks, just as though it was a generic term. A lot of articles that came out from a lot of these legacy papers when it came to gun violence and crime in the Black community, they often use the word thug or brutes um, or aggressive. Um, and so this is really troublesome that they use this because immediately it makes a reader connect Black people to crime. Um, and thug is a connotation of, of crime, right, of, of aggression. Eternity Martis is an assistant professor of journalism at Toronto Metropolitan University. She developed the course called Reporting on Race, the Black Community in the Media. And she says we as journalists must choose our words carefully. One of the biggest drivers of public perception is the media. We have a lot of power to determine what people think about and what we say and what we print has a significant impact on the values that we have as a culture and as a society and as individuals. So to throw it in there on top of, you know, the many other articles that have run about Black men being criminals, Black men being gangsters and thugs, it adds to that idea that one, it's okay to call Black men thugs, but that Black men are thugs and they are criminals. Michael says the use of that term hit hard. 
I'll be honest with you. I remember when that came out, we had over 30 participants at one time in one space. And that was something that they were upset about. They were upset, like, what is this guy talking about? Um, because they know that was an insult to them. You were talking about individuals that have been dealing with systemic issues, you know what I mean, living in marginalized communities. He's calling them thugs and not understanding some of the issues that they have to live with day to day, right? And not understanding why are they living the way that they're living is because of the conditions that they're living in, first of all, right? Some of the systemic issues that they're dealing with within their community, discrimination within their community, right? And lack of opportunity, right? So those are the things that, you know, just put a bad taste in their mouth when it came to it. Although the term showed up in the 2012 article that led us to Michael, that one article alone isn't the reason Michael is wary of journalists. It's a combination of several experiences. Around 2014, 2015, Michael agreed to be interviewed for several stories by various news outlets, mostly about Rexdale. That time we'll get a lot of messages, a lot of emails, um, requests. And you know what it is, right? Once one journalist sees you, another journalist is going to call you, and another journalist, so you're, you're getting bombarded by, you know, um, different journalists. Journalists were asking to interview him about incidents of gun violence in the neighborhood. And I think at that time, um, the message that was going out was like, Rexdale was this terrible place. Rexdale was this terrible place. Like, you don't want to go to Rexdale, you know what I mean? Like, there was people, like, afraid to even come to Rexdale. And, and not all of Rexdale is, a, is bad. Michael says that when he did those interviews, he tried to highlight other, more positive aspects of Rexdale. He hoped his comments in these articles would help people understand the neighborhood was more than just a place where people got shot. But those parts of his interviews never made the final cut. But again, the narratives are, the message is all the same, right? It's the community is negative, the community is negative, and you know? Ultimately, Michael felt that the way he came across in the articles hurt his ability to do his work as a community organizer trying to support youth. Because the, the worst thing for a person is to, you know, um, cooperate. And, and, and when I say cooperate, I mean work or support the journalist, right? And, you know, you're expecting to hear a narrative but then when it's aired, the narrative has changed. Like a lot of things that you said that was good and helped the community was taken out. And in some cases, when his words were quoted, he felt they didn't accurately represent the message he was trying to get across. And sometimes some of the things that you said and the way they put it in, it doesn't sound like that's what you were saying. Do you know what I mean, right? And that's, to me, it was, it's scary, right? That's why Michael rarely speaks to journalists now. He actively turns down most requests for interviews. First of all, I want to know where is it going, what's the narrative, and what's the purpose for our interview, right? Um, uh, I, you know, I mean, I, 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 I don't like to speak on things that is gonna make a negative impact on the community that I'm that I'm working or serving or supporting. 
Um, because again, it's just, you know, sometimes it's just, what's the point? After hearing Michael's story, we were curious about why he'd agreed to talk with us. We're journalists too, after all. So my co-producer, Britt, asked him. So then my question to you is, why did you agree to talk to somebody like me, like a journalism student? Yeah. Because I think a student has come from a different perspective, right? You're not a mainstream media, first of all. Like I said, I will never say that I will never speak to media. I'm just very selective in who I'm speaking to. Michael told us that part of the reason he agreed to speak with us was the fact that we were interested in that old Toronto Star article from 2012, the one we found so disturbing. From Michael's perspective, it was positive. It wasn't about violence or crime. Despite its derogatory language, that article featured an important and effective program. You know, you, you guys, that was a positive thing. Right? That was positive, right? So for you guys to want to kind of go back and relook at that and kind of look at where we are right now, um, to me, that was positive. Right? That's something that, yeah, I would want to be a part of that. I would want to um, sit down and, and, and speak with you, right? you know, um, because of that. It also didn't hurt that it was a friend of his who put us in touch with him. Uh, you're co-signed by Devon Jones, by the way. But <laughs> Devon Jones was also quoted in that news story from 2012. That's why we'd been in touch with him. We asked Michael how Devon convinced him to talk with us. I think you, um, because you guys are persistent too. <laughs> no. <laughs> Devon is a community worker who's known Michael for years. Now, Devon runs an organization called the Youth Association for Academics, Athletics, and Character Education, based in Jane and Finch in the northwest end of Toronto. It's a program that supports young people from ages 6 to 29 years old. There's a lot of academic support outside of school, like tutoring and mentorship. There's also access to organized sports activities, both at a beginner and competitive levels. They also support formerly incarcerated youth. When we met up with Devon, they were running a basketball practice at a high school on a Saturday. He also had meetings with psychologists and social workers that day about their public safety strategy. Devon found us a quiet spot in the school to sit down for the interview. He put his phone on silent while we talked, but I kept noticing it lighting up. Texting with the youth in his program is something he does a lot. Devon sees it as part of his job. It seems like he's available around the clock. Yeah, because it's, again, it's communication, right? If I, if I have young men in my program, more vulnerable, volatile, like, you know, I always want to have access to them in real time. You know, I want them to have access to me. Coach something. I've been, in the, I've been home at 3 o'clock in the morning. Like, it's like, Coach, you gotta come to my house. Something has gone wrong. Jump in my bed at three o'clock and I'm at that kid's house. We wanted to ask him about that article from 2012, so we brought a printout to show him. He immediately remembered the reporter. Oh, wow. Louise Brown. Okay, cool. I'm gonna start a call. 
Yeah. She referred to me as Burley in that article, I remember. Oh, yeah. How do you feel about that? It's okay. We actually tried to reach Louise Brown several times over the two months we were working on this story, but never heard back. She's no longer working as a journalist. But Devon says he really liked the article she wrote in 2012. He says, in some ways, it had a positive impact on youth in the program. Yeah, I think it was, I mean, for a lot of the the young men, it was important that, you know, uh, their road to redemption was documented. Um, it was important to them that a, a media, a medium as big as the Toronto Star, you know, spoke about them and legitimized and validated their their redemption story or documented and spoke about their transition in a positive way, mm-hmm. in a hopeful way. Devon doesn't avoid journalists, but he's pretty selective about what he says to them. Yeah, I'm very intentional. Like, you have to be intentional because you kind of, part of the problem is that you have a random, you have a random person who knows nothing about your world. Mm-hmm. They don't understand what it is to live in a community where you're ducking gunshots or, you know, you're learning, you have to, you have to learn to ride your bike in the basement of your of your small uh, townhouse because you couldn't go outside and play, you know? And when they come to your community, they assume that we should have the same level of, of opportunity, but that's not the case. We grew up in a very vastly different environment. Both Devon and Michael are very cautious when it comes to interviews because of their past experiences with journalists. Right. I know that you, you have an objective, they have a job to do, and that's all they're doing. So they're really just using us to kind of get the, meet the objectives to what they're doing and to get their story, right? But then that doesn't bring any anything back to the community, right? Professor Eternity Martis says journalists have a responsibility to learn about the communities we report on. The thing is that we just need to be more informed and that we have the the education as journalists that we bring people in, if we don't know what we're talking about or we're not exactly sure how language works um, around communities we don't belong to, that we bring someone in and talk to them, um, have them talk to us. Uh, And this is important also because we're losing trust. We already have trust at a, well, mistrust is is at a record high for the news. And so when we continue to repurpose and uh, perpetuate these stereotypes of, of racism, of aggression, then we lose more trust. And Michael got us thinking too when he said something about his own work. One of the key things what we've learned to do is not to just um, um, tell the community what they want, but have the community become a voice to themselves and have the community tell us what they need and what they want, and we support that. Maybe we could learn from his approach. Instead of only dropping into communities to grab quick, flashy news hits, we need to be better listeners. We need to think about helping people share their stories, rather than just taking only what we think we need. Unless we do that, we can't accurately report on any community, because we're not getting the full story. We asked Michael how he thinks journalists can do a better job of covering Rexdale. Having 
you know, like journalists actually supporting the community, bad and good, a hundred percent. I think that's great, right? Because, like I said, it not all the time there's bad things happening, right? And many times when there is bad things happening or things that are that that are happening in the community, that you know, it's it's a, it's not the whole community. It's a neighborhood. It's a part of that community, right? A pocket of that community that's, that is. But there's still so much great things that are happening within the community. We also asked him, what would that look like? And, and, for, and for that to happen, you have to be a part and be in the community, right? To kind of get a better understanding of, you know what I mean? And be able to report on all aspects of the community, not just one negative aspects of the community, but we want the positive also to be and shown to the rest of the, you know, the world, right? So. After the interview, Michael took the time to show us something. He pointed out these sheets of paper hanging on the walls in his office. Each one had a name, with arrows pointing to different words like job and cell phone and rent. Each name represented a young person that Think Twice is working with. The arrows point to different needs that the organization is trying to help them meet. We asked them, like, let's look at your life. And what are the things in your life that will make your life better? What are some of the things that you need? What are some of the goals that you need to work on? Right? And then- it made us think about our goals as journalists. Each person Michael works with has different needs. To get the whole picture, he has to sit down with them and ask. If we truly want to cover any community with accuracy and nuance, we're going to have to do the same. We Met You When is a production by students from journalism at The Creative School, Toronto Metropolitan University. This episode was produced by Britt Weaver and me, Maddie Mahoney. Sherry Okeke is our executive producer and professor. Angela Glover is our director of audio production. Lindsay Hanna is our web design specialist. Additional sound design by L. Laws and Curtis Martin. I'm your host, Maddie Mahoney. Thanks for listening.